0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show, He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well,
1: thank you and a very pleasant good afternoon. Welcome. It is uh, just five minutes after the hour, of five o'clock on uh, this uh, Tuesday edition. And I hope you're doing well. Good to spend some, uh, some time with you as always. It's a great privilege to be able to uh, be welcomed into your car or your home or wherever you might be. Um, we've got a pretty jam-packed program tonight. And uh, regretfully. This is never easy to share this kind of news. And so at the start of the program, let's just get it out of the way. And then I'll give you more detail coming up later on in tonight's show. We're going to, in fact, be uh, running a tribute uh, later on this evening and throughout the six o'clock hour tonight. But uh, I'm saddened to report uh, to the many fans of the um, Charles Stanley In Touch broadcast that uh, we received word earlier today. The doctor Stanley has passed away at his home in Atlanta, Georgia, at the age of ninety. And um, no idea what uh, details are being made yet in terms of uh, funeral services. I can tell you that the family has requested, in lieu of flowers, donations be given to In Touch Ministries. And um, we'll share some more information with you coming up in about uh, forty-five minutes tonight. As I say, we're going to have a, a tribute to Doctor Stanley and highlight one of his. Outstanding messages on the program, and then over the next couple of days, we've been kind of going through the uh, the, uh, the vast audio vault here at KFAX, unearthing some uh, conversations with Doctor Stanley. One that goes all the way back to uh, 1997. So we'll get a chance to um, relive some memories over the next couple of days, and. Uh, I think as we, um, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord, while it might be a loss for us down here on earth, it is uh, graduation day for Dr. Charles Stanley today. And again, more details coming up for you a little bit later on in tonight's program. Ever notice the mailman out and about on a Sunday? You're thinking, why is the mail truck on my street on a Sunday? I didn't think they delivered mail on Sunday. Well, they don't. But a number of years ago, the U.S. Postal Service, in an effort to try and get a bit more business, engaged in the contract with Amazon. And they, in fact, deliver Amazon packages on Sunday. Now, this would not normally be newsworthy unless your name was Gerald Groff. Gerald used to work for the postal system out of Pennsylvania. And, you know, one of the reasons why he decided to enter into a career as um, postman was because he had the same idea I did. They don't work on Sundays. Perfect. So I can work Monday through Saturday anytime the boss needs me. But Sundays, Sundays is the Lord's day. Sundays is the day of rest. And so I'm going to go to work for an industry that doesn't work on Sundays, and this will be great. Or so he thought. Not long after joining the Postal Service, um, his bosses began asking him to cover Sunday shifts. And he politely explained that, well, as I told you when I first onboarded... um, I can't work on Sundays because for me, it's a holy day of obligation and I'm happy to work any Sunday, any Saturday. I'm happy to work other holidays, uh, even when the post office is closed, perhaps if you need somebody to deliver packages for Amazon. But I can't do it on Sundays. Sounds like a reasonable request. Sounds like a reasonable accommodation. And yet the United States Postal Service did not agree. And you can bet courts and attorneys got involved and here we are. Let's go deeper on this story. Brad Dacus joins us now constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute and cases like this uh, Brad I know are right up your alley so give us a bit more background here. As I suggest I, I have always understood that a reasonable accommodation for religious expression um, was kind of baked into federal employment law but it if it is, apparently it's not being followed by the Postal Service. And if it isn't, why so?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, we have Pacific Justice Institute uh, filed a friend of the court, amicus brief in this matter, uh, because it is potentially very far-reaching. Uh, yes, Title VII under, uh, under the Civil Rights Act uh, requires employers to reasonably accommodate employees who have sincere religious uh, objections uh, regarding uh, certain uh, workplace requirements. And um, so what, what What happened here is, uh, you know, he expressed that, uh, you know, the rules were changed. He's been working there and working there. Um, he's getting close to, you know, uh, fully vesting as far as his, uh, you know, retirement goes. And suddenly the rules are changed and they say, okay, now you have to work on Sunday. and uh, And they made no... Bona fide attempt to try to reasonably accommodate, and they're required to do so. Uh, their defense, they say, well, you know, there's just there's just no way of accommodating. Well, they should have tried number one. The number two, they say, well, it, w- it wouldn't be possible, uh, th- you know, th- based on the president's standard of, uh, you know, if it's more than a de minimis uh, you know, burden, and and they say well, it's more than that, you know, it's just inconvenience, you know, to have to reschedule uh, for him. But uh, the reality is um they're the ones who changed the rules uh, you know after 19 years of reliance and uh, and they, uh, they he deserves to be able to to stay working there and not to have to work on sunday they can't accommodate him Uh, They just refused to do so, and I think he's got a great
1: case. Yeah, you know, what struck me in in reading this article, and of course if folks have been watching the news, it's been all over the network news today as well, uh, you know, they're suggesting that, well, this has put an undue burden on the Postal Service, so on and so forth. uh, And yet what strikes me odd is, I find it hard to believe that there are that many people working for the postal service um, in his town in Pennsylvania that all object to um, working on a Sunday. I mean, I realize that there are certain businesses and maybe this is kind of an unusual example, but there are businesses that work on days that need to be up and running 24 seven. I mean, I work in broadcasting. We never shut down. You, know? <laughs> you, you may not see us working, but there's usually somebody here at the shop uh, keeping an eye on things. And uh, you know, if something blows up and it happens to be in the middle of Christmas Eve at, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon, you drop what you're doing and you go into the office because it's a 24-7 operation. But in in terms of the accommodation being provided for or not being provided by the post office, how, how can they not argue that there are elements of this that must feel discriminatory? Again, this gentleman has indicated, hey, he's volunteered to come in. I'll work on Thanksgiving. I'll work on, you know, day after Thanksgiving. He's willing to work Any day of the week under any set of circumstances except Sundays, I somehow find it hard to believe that they can't find enough postal workers on Sunday to cover a reasonable accommodation like this.
2: You're right. And, and you know, Craig, it's interesting. So they didn't really even they can't even really show that they even made a bona fide effort to do so. Uh, which really weakens their case. Uh, you know, they, they make the, the general sweeping statement, oh, it's an undue burden. But the reality is, that just as you, as you pointed out, um, there's a large portion, unfortunately, uh, who work for the post office who don't go to church on Sunday and would have no problem working on Sunday if they get Saturday off. So uh, this, I believe, more is um, a, a philosophy uh, that it really doesn't see the value in accommodating people of faith. Uh, it's real important that uh, he prevail. I think he will prevail. And I predict that the only question now is how broad of a precedent is it going to be. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a positive precedent moving forward as we at Pacific Justice Institute will use that precedent in our many, uh, many cases, the thousands that we're representing right now under Title Seven. Uh, arguing the absence of an undue burden to justify the discrimination. Now,
1: could there be a double-edged sword here? And And I pose that question because, let's say for example, an individual approaches the boss and says, well as a Christian, one of my highest holy days is Christmas, December 25th, and I am therefore requesting the day off. In comes the next employee who says, well, I'm a Muslim, and our high holy season is Ramadan, and that lasts for 12 days. I need 12 days off. Where does it go from being a reasonable religious accommodation to being excessive to the point where people could either cripple a business or, quite frankly, be manipulative. And then, that. And let me, let me preface that, or, or uh, put a disclaimer on the end rather by saying that's not suggesting that Muslims would do that. I'm simply suggesting that there could be circumstances where such a policy of reasonable religious accommodation could be taken advantage of. So, where do you draw the line?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's one thing for an employee to say, you know what, instead of working on Sunday, I want to work on Saturday. Uh, Swapping days, that's not an undue burden or hardship. But for an employee to say, hey, uh, my religion says I can't work the month of October, so uh, pay me, but I'm not going to work. Well, that is an undue burden because uh, first they're being paid and they're not working and they're not putting as many days as, as other workers. So accommodating allowing people to switch the days they're working that's no problem. Employees, though, who may even think about trying to do, use this to get more days off out of the pretext of religion, uh, they better hang that up very quickly because that's not going to work.
1: All right, let me... Um kind of shift our discussion here to another topic that's also been in the news a lot lately, and that is the battle that Calvary Chapel of San Jose has been having with the County of Santa Clara. Most recently, a Superior Court judge in California has ruled that Calvary of San Jose must pay $1.2 million in fines, including interest for, quote-unquote, violating public health orders during the COVID-19 pandemic emergency. Now, you know, this this is this is nuanced in in many ways, but one of the concerns here is um, that they would expect a nonprofit organization would have anywhere near that kind of money to just write a check and say, "Okay, we'll pay the fine."
2: Yeah, it is outrageous. Um, it's indicative of the uh, religious intolerance uh, of the San Francisco Bay Area and san jose in particular uh, i will point out though, that we at pacific justice institute in that same county santa clara county uh we uh, defended five other churches uh not this one we defended five other churches and we were able to get an emergency rift from the supreme court uh ordering that those churches be allowed to uh to to meet in their uh, their church services uh you know indoors uh, we protected our clients by advising them to have outdoor services while the case pen- was pending. Uh, they did that, so they didn't get the million-plus dollars of penalties and fees against them. And they also they won the case, and we were able to set a great precedent. Um, so part of this, though, at the end of the day, I have to say, is is uh, not always necessarily what's strategically the best, but at the end of the day, the pastor has to do what they feel is, uh, what God wants them to do, and they have to follow that conviction, um, you know. So I can't, uh, you know, I can't criticize that in that regard. Uh, but uh, sometimes there's a price that has to be paid. Uh, hopefully, on appeal, uh, this church will not have to pay that 1.2 million dollars uh, for uh, their in, in inside meetings uh, while uh, litigation was taking place. Um, and hopefully, they'll, they uh, they will be successful. But right now. Um, it's it's an adverse decision, unquestionably.
1: And, and, you know, what's what's ironic about this, speaking earlier about, you know, reasonable religious accommodations, I mean, I, I whether or not one agrees with the position that Pastor Mike McClure has taken on the topic or not, it, it would seem to me, Counselor, yes, the county has a compelling public health reason uh, at the time in the early days of COVID to put regulations in, face masking, trying to control large crowds gathering, you know, the, this thing was... running wild in those days. My goodness, before it was all said and done, over a million Americans died from COVID. So I can understand the compelling health concern. But at the same token, given how much emphasis and value that this nation historically, constitutionally, has placed on religious freedom, it would seem to me that this would be one good arena for a fairly significant exemption. And and by that, I mean this. Um, You know, if you want to argue we're going to to insist that people who go into the grocery store during the height of COVID wear a face mask. Well, you know, not going to the grocery store for most people isn't an option. You need to eat. And at some point, you've got to go to the store and you might say, hey, I don't want to go to the store and because somebody else chooses not to wear a mask, potentially be uh, be exposed. Because that is something that you have to do as a matter of survival. you got to eat. But going to church, if everybody going to church decides you know what, I, I'm not overly concerned about COVID, and if I catch COVID, I'll deal with the consequences. This is the decision that I am making. I choose to gather together with this group of people and worship on a Sunday, and if the policy is we're not going to be compelled to wear face masks, so bid. You have the option to say, I'm not going to that church, or I'm going to go to a church that does enforce face mask policies, or I'm going to watch it via video. So I don't understand how the county, and and as a, as a result, the, the Superior Court is arguing being that Calvary Chapel is compelled to comply with this regulation when people are there voluntarily.
2: Yeah, they're there voluntarily, and and also other entities, restaurants and stores were open, so there was a clear, uh, you know, d- d- desperate treatment here uh, that took place adversely to churches. And now we also know that uh, you know that being you know vaccinated didn't prevent transmission. Uh, necessarily, so I mean the, the the facts and the studies have just crumbled. As far as I'm concerned, the the, the basic foundation of their their mandate in the first place. That said, uh, you know I think that uh, you know there's still a chance that the church could prevail as this uh, may works its way up uh, through the appellate uh, continue appellate process. Um, you know I think uh, it was clear injustice. Uh, you know other states across the country, as you know, Craig, they were letting churches open. And the studies all show uh, they didn't have higher fatality rates than intolerant states or intolerant cities like San Jose in California. Yeah, and,
1: and you know the other the other final point on this, and that is the notion that you're going to force the church to pay a 1.2 million dollar fine. Well. You know, from the broader perspective, we would say that's not the church's money; that's God's money. But, 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 you know, I, I guess more technically put, uh, in the flesh, that's money donated by parishioners to the church. And I don't know that the church—I mean, sorry—that the state has a claim to those dollars. I mean, it, it just—it just seems to be wrong on so many levels. And I guess now we have to wait for this to sort of work its way through the course. Where would you expect this going next if it—if it has been handed down by a superior? Court judge, does is the next stop the state supreme court before SCOTUS?
2: Well, from the supreme from the uh, superior court, it goes to uh, appellate court, um, and then it goes to uh, the uh, state supreme court, and then it goes to U.S. Supreme Court. So this could uh, this could go on for, for quite a while, um, but uh, you know we're, we're hopeful that it, uh, at the end of the day that uh, they won't have this huge burden. I do advise churches in the future. If they ever have any doubts or questions about uh, these kind of very difficult situations, uh, we'd love to work with them and to give them uh, you know, the best strategy to maximize their freedom uh, with minimizing their risk. Uh, that's what we did with the five uh, churches we defended. And, um, and at the same time, uh, no matter what a, a church decides, we uh, all, should always respect their freedom to make that decision and to, to follow what God's put on their heart to do.
1: And when in doubt, call first. Uh, that's the bottom line message. And of course, uh, the place to call, Pacific Justice Institute. We invite you to reach out to them at uh, 916- 857-6900 or you can go online to pacificjustice.org That's pacificjustice.org Thank you so much for the update, counselor, constitutional lawyer, and of course the founder and president. i wears lots of hats of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Thanks,
0: Brad. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: This will kind of set you back on your heels. Two-thirds of men and a third of women who attend church regularly say they struggle with pornography. More than one-third of men attending church are locked into a continuous struggle with it. 52% of teens have been exposed to violent porn. Amongst younger Christian men, 36% say they use porn daily. And if you think it's just a men problem, one study showed 73% of women have used porn in the last six months, 26% in the last week. Wow. And, of course, it's all around you. Even just an innocent search, you might have all of the proper settings on your computer and still an innocent search, and before you know it, you're getting bombarded. And, of course, the presence of soft porn in advertising and... Entertainment has been around for decades now. So what to do? How do we respond to all this? And is the church doing all that it can to help these individuals break free from this addiction? With some insights, we're joined by Sam Black. Sam has edited 16 books on this particular topic. And he's got one out that will be released in May called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. Sam, thank you for being with us today. Uh, my goodness, to talk about some of these statistics, it, it's pretty alarming. And I would think that the one place where we would have some pretty solid answers would be within the church. But, you know, it seems as if, at least from from hearing about this topic down through the decades, from my perspective, that this approach is a lot like the way we used to approach drugs uh, uh, drug use, just say no. And we know that doesn't work very well. Is that also true in this case here with the way the church has approached the issue of pornography and pornography
3: addictions? Greg, thank you so much for having me. And I think that is one of the big struggles that we're seeing is that we have within the church said if we warn them enough, then they'll just stop or they'll never go there. And what we really need to understand is that pornography is an insidious weapon against those in the church and that pornography is undermining every ministry within the church. And if we think about children's ministry, well, we know that children, depending on the survey that you're viewing, somewhere between eight years old and 12 years old is the average age for first exposure. But I've spoken to many Christian parents who uh, even homeschooled their kids and found that I have saw repeatedly, five, six, seven, eight years old, where children are being exposed to pornography long before they even understand the basics of human anatomy. And so if, if our children are being exposed and we have to think about, okay, we have teen ministries in the church, how is, that, how is pornography undermining our efforts? With teens. And of course, men's ministry and marriage women, marriage ministry and women's ministry. We just think about just specifically marriage ministry. We spend a lot of time on efforts in the church, helping uh, marriages grow and thrive. We teach classes on how to communicate, et cetera. But we often skip over that issue of pornography that is undermining all that effort. In 56% of divorce cases today, a major contributing factor is an ongoing use, a compulsive use of pornography by one spouse or the other. Wow. Um, pretty significant numbers. And, of course, as as we've
1: both pointed out now, uh, the ability of the church to really adequately address these issues um, has been stymied. I, I, I suppose in large part um, because there's also a pretty alarming rate of use even amongst pastoral leadership. And so, you know, if you're struggling with the problem yourself, the, the inclination to get up in the pulpit and preach about it is probably going to be <laughs> pretty hampered.
3: Well, there there uh, is, a, and I talk about it in the book, uh, the percentages of, of senior pastors and youth pastors who are struggling. But I think even more so and more important is that so often we have buried this in shame and we have we have thought that we can solve the problem with simply warning don't do that don't go there uh it's god's not for that stop that don't do that anymore and that is not helping so what we need to do within the church is create opportunities for real change in life i've served with an organization called covenant eyes for the last 16 years and it um Within that I've I've spoken to many pastors and many, uh, literally thousands of men and women one on one. And what I've found over and over again is that churches who create a safe place with a safe process can create meaningful change. And what's so amazing about that, not only do those people find freedom and healing from pornography and are able to put it in their past for good, that when they go through a safe place of the safe process, those people go on fire. You are creating dynamic disciples who want to give back and do. So we often worry, well, the, the local ministry leader or pastor might worry, I just, there's so much that's impacting our church, is this issue and issues like it, uh, how can I possibly do all that work? And what we found over and over in my in my study for the Healing Church, I went to churches that were doing this work well. And what I found was those church pastors say, I do less, I don't do more. The, through this, through uh, a safe discipleship process, people are finding freedom. And when they do find freedom, every process that I've seen calls on them to give back. And so as you disciple, you create disciples and create real life change. But we have to address this issue because right now we just bury it uh, often and we don't want to talk about it and it becomes a little bit shameful. Maybe we speak or say the word uh, pornography or something like that during a sermon or men's ministry event, but we're not really providing a guide to help them truly live in freedom. And you know,
1: there's an aspect of this too that that unlike a lot of other struggles, I mean, churches will have divorce recovery workshops, we're okay with that. They will have programs like Celebrate Recovery, which has been phenomenal to help people get over certain types of an addiction. Maybe it's, you know, substance abuse, alcohol, whatever it might be. We'll we'll talk about those issues, but when it comes to this one, everybody kind of gets interested in the floor and I would wonder if maybe part of the issue is that it has been so steeped in a sense of guilt and shame that when a Christian is ashamed to admit that they're struggling and pastors don't know how to address the issue, it, it, it really almost locks this into this, you know, unhealthy dance that we're doing that we don't want to talk about it nobody wants to listen to us talk about it and so as a result can christians just continue to struggle and struggle and struggle and then you know uh, unlike alcohol for example where you have to kind of make a conscious effort to go to the store go to the bar and get it pornography can follow you around wherever you go in our in our internet you know, crazy wired world or wireless world in which we live uh, you know it, it, it doesn't take much uh, much effort at all to encounter in fact it comes finds you do some of these issues also then contribute to the reason why so many believers are struggling with this
3: here is what i found over uh, many studies are showing this as well count. this is not necessarily new uh, in in these in the circles who understand this issue well but often it's not something that the church understands very well there are three aspects where people are caught and trapped in the stronghold of pornography. Three aspects that are almost always present. First is early exposure. Um, it Early exposure to an underdeveloped brain uh, can build a, a, a framework, a foundation upon which other beliefs, which other aspects are um, uh, permanently in, sort of ingrained into that young brain. And that prefrontal cortex of the brain, it doesn't develop until the 20s, so you have a brain that feels a lot and is very intense in its feelings, but not very good at its, its executive function. So, and, and every child is naturally curious about what the opposite sex looks like naked. And it. So that formative experience is very impactful from a neurological perspective. That's why almost everybody you talk to, they can tell you a story about the first time they first saw pornography. So number one, early exposure. Two is the repetition. Uh, Today we have such easy access, as you were talking about, and that's been going on for decades now. Uh, I hear from even You know, even older uh, men and women who may have only seen magazines, it seemed that there was a lot of access in their younger years. And that repetition helps build those neural pathways in the brain the way God created us. And we have to understand that This is not about sex. Pornography is a hijacking of what God created. God created sex to be beautiful in marriage, but pornography is not sex. It's a hijacking of what God created. So one, early exposure. Number two, the ongoing repetition, especially through adolescence. And number three, this is often the cement in this as well, is the, there is some trauma or drama early in life, especially, but can happen later. And pornography becomes becomes an escape and people begin regulating their moods and are easily triggered by pornography. I can tell you, there's a story I share about my own life. I was exposed when I was 10 years old um, by a brother who was older than me, and I really, I, at 10 years old, I had not yet been told about sex. I didn't understand how it worked, but they were showing me these images, and I could tell you a full story about that. I also had a friend and his dad had pornography that was falling out of his closet. There was this huge stack of it and I'm dating myself a little bit with magazines, but picture a closet that looks a lot like a waterfall and there's a stack at the top shelf. It's sort of pouring over and there's a pile on the floor and I can take anything I want and I did. The third part of this, even though I came from a Christian home, that home was hypocritically violent and I would learn to run to pornography when I was afraid, fearful, um, uh, had anxiety, frustration, and then that would expand to things like boredom. Um, I didn't do well at school. Whatever it would be, I could always run to pornography as an escape, and I didn't even realize I was doing that. I might be among the most fortunate uh, men that you'll meet because my wife was attending a church, I was by this time an agnostic in our marriage, and she asked me if I'll go to a marriage class with her. And in that church, they were a little peculiar. They <laughs> they would shut the, the teachers would shut the door and they say, this is a safe place. And what is said here stays here. And within that honest environment where people truly talked about the things they were struggling with in their marriage, that's where I learned that pornography was compulsive and addictive. And that was a great relief. And that meant evolution in my thoughts at the time that make me this way and God didn't make me this way and I didn't have to stay this way. And Craig, with men like you, I got to take a journey of freedom to live in true freedom. So often in the church today we talk about how this is something we'll always struggle with. Well, we don't have to do that. We don't have to just because we're men or women, we do not have to struggle with this for the rest of our lives. We can live in total and absolute freedom.
1: Where and, do you find that safe uh, I just, place? I, I know that there are organizations. Uh, in fact, there's one even here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Avenue uh, that helps mm-hmm. men and women. There's also a women's program uh, deal with pornography. But you know, oftentimes we talked earlier, Sam, about that sense of guilt and, and shame. How do we get the ball rolling? How do where, where do we go to start this process of healing?
3: You know, James five sixteen teaches us to confess our sins to one another, and pray for one another so that we may be healed. Yet we have a very hard time practicing that. And we have to ask ourselves, what part of James 5.16 do we not believe? And so, uh, likely, I be- if you're someone who's struggling, There is likely someone in your church that you can begin a conversation with and begin to feel them out, how would they respond to me? As a ministry leader or pastor, you can create safety by having uh, uh, opportunities to just start the conversation, to talk about the details that are described in the book of why men and women get stuck in pornography. And as you begin teaching about that, whether it's in a men's group or a women's group, uh, etc., there will be an opening up. And I, in fact, I have found that often when churches begin teaching parents about how pornography is coming after their kids and how it creates an, is a, such a neurological impact on their kids and how they can begin taking steps to protect their children, Now there's an understanding of why people get stuck, why they often stay stuck, and how to live in freedom. And so, with those basic cursory discussions, someone begins to understand, oh my. This is me. They're describing me. I was exposed when I was a child. Yes, I was using pornography throughout my adolescence. And yes, I've been using pornography in my marriage. I want out of this, but I don't know how to get out. And that's when you can, when you create that understanding in the church, you begin to create the safety in the church. Uh, even in the small, it can start small and it will grow. The new book by Sam Black called, The
1: Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. The book will be released in May. You can pre-order online at thehealingchurch.com. That's thehealingchurch.com. If you live here in the immediate San Francisco Bay Area, and this is an issue that you have been struggling with, be it addiction, pornography, or perhaps infidelity, there is a ministry called Avenue that is a great resource. Uh, Clay Allen, the founder of the organization, I've known for many, many years. You can get more information online at Avenue Dot .works that's avenue.works. 545 from KFAX we take a brief timeout when we come back. a special tribute to the late Dr. Charles Stanley who passed away this morning at his home in Atlanta at the age of 90. More details to follow as Lifeline continues.